My name is Optimus Prime. We are autonomous robotic organisms from the planet Cybertron. Welcome to Glop, the podcast featuring Jonah Goldberg, Rob Long, and me, John Podhoritz. Uh, I'm talking to you from a nondescript hotel room in downtown Washington, D.C. I believe Jonah is in a uh, lavish mansion in the Palisade section of D.C. Is that correct, Jonah? Uh, it's not a lavish mansion. I am generally in the Palisades area. I'm in a reclining leather chair, though, which feels like a mansion. It's a mansion for my tuchus. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and Rob, are you sailing along the canals of Venice, California? Well, no. Uh, no, you couldn't even do that, I don't think. You, you had to pedal, I suppose, or, or, or paddle. Uh, pedal or paddle? No, I'm, uh, I'm sitting in my, uh, in, my, in my home and uh, having a cup of coffee. It's 7.30 in the morning here, 7.40 in the morning here, looking out the window and um, – Kind of staring at the the computers. I do do many mornings. Wonderful. Well, this show is brought to you by Audible.com, the home for audio content on the internet. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it with over 100,000 titles in virtually every genre. You'll find what you're looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30-day trial today by signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com backslash glop. That's G-L-O-P, the extremely distinguished uh, default name of this glorious podcast. So, gentlemen, um, uh, as we speak, it is uh, 14 hours uh, since the uh, announcement that former Governor Mark Sanford had prevailed in his special election effort to secure a House seat in his home state of South Carolina only a couple of years after he uh, left the governorship in a certain amount of disgrace, though he finished his term as a result of the revelation of his uh, affair with an Argentine woman uh, that we first learned about because his spokesman had told the press that he was hiking along the Appalachian Trail by himself. Um, any thoughts about the meaning, the meta-meaning of Mark Sanford's uh, return to public service? Jonah? A great, fantastic yeah. euphemism to hike along the Appalachian Trail. Um, I, look, I, That's Rob. That's yeah. Rob speaking, by the way. Yes, yeah, it's Rob speaking. I'm sorry. Jonah, I, I, walked, I walked right over you. Go ahead. It's all right. It's all right. I, I mean, I, I have this long post in the corner uh, on – Wednesday, let's just say, because we don't want to date this this timeless podcast um, about this. And I guess my you know my take on it is I I think there's a, a lot of things that need to be figured out, and they need to be figured out by conservatives. The first thing I will say is sort of that I I have like no use for the finger wagging from liberals about all of this. Um, if you look yeah. at if you look at you know I mean start with the fact that you know John F you know you see. So Mark Sanford's opponent, Elizabeth Colbert Bush, she explains that her hero is John F. Kennedy, and that's why she got into politics. Well, John F. Kennedy, as a matter of sort of sexual propriety, makes Mark Sanford seem like a saint. Mark totally. Sanford Mark Sanford fell in love with a woman of his own age, as John uh, likes to point out all the time, and it's a good point. Um, and their marriage fell and his marriage fell apart as a result. Okay, that is an old story. Um, John F. Kennedy pimped out interns to his staff. Um, you know, he was a rapacious sex addict um, and drug addict who um, behaved in ways that were would be wildly irresponsible for an accountant. Never mind a guy in a in a in the you know running the Cold War at its height. Um, and if you if you have admiration for Kennedy, if you have admiration for Bill Clinton, uh, Elliot Spitzer, if you think that that Anthony Weiner should be allowed back in politics, I don't need a bunch of liberals picking up conservative standards that they don't agree with just as a cudgel to beat up conservatives with. Also, all that stuff like uh, you know, the, um, they were also tweeting last night. Oh, women lost big last night. You know, the idea that he somehow was some he was somehow some abusive character. This, I mean, if anything, he's sort of this. He is a romantic figure. I'm kind of, if, I mean, if, 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 uh, that, that I, I, re, I do remember. I remember watching that whole thing. I was in an airport. It was at JFK actually, 
and watching the whole thing and thinking, you know, poor guy, but also kind of like kind of, he looked like kind of a schoolboy, you know, this had a schoolboy passion and he had to give up his seat for it. So, I mean, if anything, he was sort of he was incredibly sympathetic. But what I loved about it was that Elizabeth Colbert Bush, all she did was make little snarky references to it as often as she could. Hiking the Appalachian Trail or this ain't Argentina or all the stuff she said in like the in the campaign trail and the debate. All she did was 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 uh, was refer to it and bring the bring the debate down to that. So when it turned out that she was trounced and she was trounced last night, that was an absolute trouncing. Um, I think they were stuck. I think they were stuck wondering how that could possibly have happened when every single person in the media, and certainly in the national media, they they sort of nationalized that campaign for sure, and all the money they poured into it simply didn't work. I mean, that's what, that's one of the reasons that was so delicious last night to sort of read the tweets of the opposition because they were so stunned and furious and and uh, and, and snitty about it. You know, well, how, you know how could this guy? A, you know, we've we've uh, this this does make things more culturally interesting because we've been in a position really for the last i would say uh uh seven years uh really since the 06 election in which um republican candidates because republic the republican party is aligned with the social conservative movement um are are being held by have have largely been held by their own and then by the media and by Democrats to a higher standard of personal behavior than Democrats are held. The, the media explanation for this is that uh, to garner, to seek to garner social conservative votes while behaving in, uh, you know, sexually inappropriate uh, manner uh, is a form of hypocrisy, and mm-hmm. hypocrisy is, of course, the worst thing ever. There is nothing worse than hypocrisy. Maybe the use of chemical weapons on uh, civilians is is worse, although we don't have enough information about that. And you know, a red line has not necessarily been crossed, but we do find ourselves in a position where. Uh, social conservatives and conservatives um, rear in horror at the behavior of elected officials um, whose uh, personal morals seem to be compromised. The media a- attacks them for their hypocrisy. Democrats ride along the coattails because it's to their political advantage. And Democrats have really not been held to the – obviously, Bill Clinton onward – have not been held to a comparable standard. So now – Seven years after the you know cascade of uh, social horrors that pr- preceded the '06 midterm elections, we have a circumstance in which um, a conventional conservative politician uh, who was best known for his um, uh, frugality, uh, though he was aligned with the social conservative movement, went off, had an affair. Uh, had a sort of humiliating public exposure of his affair and um, basically said, okay, take me, if you will. I'm running against this woman. Uh, I have my record. She has whatever she has. Um, it's up to you, voters in this you know district in South Carolina, to judge who would be the better congressman for you. And by nine points, they said that he would be. Um, but you know, we also have the you know the important phenomenon that uh, we know this from you know demographic research and everything that in you know that the, there is that uh, bizarre fact that in you know among uh, conservatives and you know social conservatives and people who live in the red states and all of that that you know divorce rates are higher probably because people get married younger and. Um, you know, so the the having gone from a cir- circumstance in which we are all judging uh, Republicans and not permitted to judge Democrats, now apparently it appears that we are now moving into the post judgment phase for everybody. Oh, that's which is good. Except, I mean, the mechanics of that race are sort of interesting because she out she outspent she outraised him and outspent him, 
And they tried to, you know, the Democrats tried to nationalize that race pretty easily. And, and I think, and prob- probably seemed like a smart move to, to, to do. But he in turn did the same thing. So the indicators of that race, okay, you cannot extrapolate from a race, a congressional race in South Carolina, conservative state, Charleston is a conservative town. All these things being equal, Mark Sanford had already been, had you know, started his career in that district, as, as representing that district in Congress. So all those things are true. But he did run against Nancy Pelosi and the National Democrats, and she did run against the Republicans. They, that, that race quickly became, at least in, for, 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 from, from this perspective, a fairly national kind of nationalized race, and she got trounced. I mean if you're – Part of the flailing around from the from the Democrats today is trying to figure out a way to describe this and spin this so that they can they can get something out of it that isn't it, it isn't it isn't a, uh, a a bad indication. Now, were I they, I'd be saying, oh, okay, you know, we lost in the midterms and we lost a bunch of special elections before 2012, and we still won in 2012. That could be what they could say. But this is an absolute loss, pretty pretty firm one from a guy they thought was dead. Who came back strong? Uh, who ran? You know, the, uh, at some point, didn't he? You know, he 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 stood up and debated a, a cutout of Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. Um, well, look, yeah, he's, and, and look, it's, yeah. I mean, one point I would add is that you know, in the and I, I agree with John entirely on this is that we are in this sort of you know this brave new world when it comes to the 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 realization among conservatives that for good or for ill, and I think there's a lot of downside to not demanding more propriety from our politicians. But for good or for ill, people have realized that we're suckers if <laughs> if we continually decide to uh, blow up our chances of winning in order to be – to, to uh, live up to a standard that nobody else will apply. Right. Um, and uh, – but you know, in a matter of sort of distinguishing between private integrity and public integrity, Elizabeth Colbert Bush was asked, you know – would you vote for Nancy Pelosi as speaker? And she couldn't answer that question honestly. She said, oh, that's basically hypothetical. Who knows who will be running for speaker if I'm elected to Congress? You know, that's right. not a – and that is the kind of thing that I think that a lot of people – I think that kind of thing hurts her – hurt her a lot because it basically was one of these – well, she's actually not going to stand for anything. Everyone knew what Mark Sanford stood for in terms of policy and politics. And so basically you're asking Republicans, because it's a Republican district, right. asking Republicans to vote for a guy they disagreed with privately but disagreed with almost entirely on public issues, um, punish that guy by electing a woman who disagreed with them on everything and was lying about it. But it's also so weird. It's like a very – this is a very weird thing. This is not like anything we've ever really experienced, I think, in politics in terms of personal scandal. He didn't use this woman. He didn't sleep around. He wasn't – it's a love story. Now, it's a complicated one. It's one that broke up a family and it's terrible. But it's just of – it's just a different order from I, uh, I was fooling around with an intern or I, you know, I was uh, on a Braniff flight and I grabbed the stewardess's you know, butt. It's just different. And and I think aside, it's a story aside from tell. that. Aside from all of this, Mark Sanford, when this happened, Mark Sanford was in his second term. He was term limited. You know, he's somebody who has never now, as it turns out, has never lost an election. He's a very good politician. Um, you know, his main issue was – you know, a spending restraint. That was his, you know, in, in Congress and then as a governor. I mean, the only thing that he conceivably damaged in his own, per, in, ultimately it appears, in his own career was the question of whether or not he might serve as a vice presidential candidate in 2012, about which there was some talk in 2009, even that he might conceivably be a presidential candidate because he's, you know, from the South, and but he's, you know, uh, smart, sophisticated. Uh, he was, you know, he was copacetic with the social conservatives, but had this other issue in hand. So, you know, he he made that more difficult. But in the end, if you sort of look at his, the trajectory of his career, he is a a good politician who, you know, uh, left office and then got elected to another office uh, two years after he after he finished his. Uh, after he finished out his term, now he had to pay a fine because you know he took a key. He let his driver drive him to 
to the airport, you know, when right, he went to visit right. his girlfriend or he right. went to some governor's conference where he, you know, he went to some conference in Brazil where he met up with her. Not that, you know, believe me, governors from these states, this, anybody who was under the impression that, you know, governors in their states, you know, sit in their states uh, and, you know, don't leave because there might be a crisis, don't understand that a lot of governors make an enormous amount of money in speaking fees leaving their states and going elsewhere. George Pataki, who was governor of New York for, you know, uh, I don't know what it was, um, 12 years. George Pataki spent, I don't know, 150 days out of the state giving speeches. So, you know, it's a it's an absurdity to say that, you know, he left his post. He abandoned his post to go, you know. Yeah, not, but he did, right. he did use office scotch tape. And, yes, and, right. and paper to make his collage about Argentina. Right, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. <laughs> right. No, but again, see, this is where we get into the circumstance in which, in which when there is a kind of uh, – uh, social conservatives are horrified. Uh, liberals hate Sanford. Uh, the media likes to go after Republican politicians. And Democrats find that useful that um, the whole kind of like, oh, come on, this doesn't pass the smell test. Cut, you know, get over yourself. This is where he was away for three days. You have like six weeks of hysteria about this sort of thing. And it's, social and conservatives it's, really, it's, it's ridiculous are, nonsense. You know, it's, social it's, conservatives really. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I just are they really that outright? I mean, they were. I mean, they were. They absolutely were. And there was a lot of, you know, I mean, there was a lot of. Um, I don't know how to describe this. You know, it it it's like conversations, you know, in a neighborhood when yeah. somebody leaves their what you know, it's like and then, you, then so it's disgusting. over. How how could they? And then it's over, and then you get like over that it. And the humiliate, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, but then okay, that's I get it. And then it's but then it's over. And then you then you get then you move on. I mean, if it's one th- I mean, social conservatives is really a code word in Certainly for South, in South Carolina for Christian, conservative Christians. And um, one aspect, one of the chief aspects of Christianity is forgiveness. And I can't imagine that there are social – I mean a good Christian, a good, even good fundamental conservative Christians would look at this and say mistake, um, uh, an error of the heart. But it's not the same thing as 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 some kind of – Creepy, priapic using of a an intern or girls in general, or going to Vegas or a hot and cold running, uh, you know, uh, showgirls. I mean, it's not. It's just not. He fell in love with somebody, um, and and that's what. I mean, so I, so in a way, the story itself. I think the fact that he has a story to tell is one of the reasons why it's not a big deal to people. I mean, I don't. It, I don't know. Deal. if I think he ran a really good campaign. He didn't. Yeah, that's true. He didn't panic. He didn't, you know, give sodden interviews to Barbara Walters trying to, you know, explain, you know, the nature of his. He basically said, okay, there's a, you know, I'm, you know, you pretty much agree with me more than you would agree with her. I'm going to go around. I'll talk to anybody. I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'm going to keep, I'm going to remain calm. I'm, you know, if you won't debate me, I'll debate a cut out of Nancy Pelosi. Um, You know, I, you know, you I'm the kind of guy you want in 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 the house representing your interests, not representing your, you know, the the totality of your belief system, right. and representing the best in human conduct, you know, or the or the most exemplary human conduct. I mean, there are 435 members of Congress. The notion that you know, the notion that um, that they. Uh, alone among anybody in the you know in in the United States are supposed to you know be paragons of personal behavior. Ha, and, you know, know every famous person in the country, you know is is in the midst of uh, what divorces, mean, tweeting out tweeting out salacious pictures. Yeah, but that's that's part of the problem. Right? An indication. Do you think I'm this sorry? is an indication? This 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 South Carolina, the first district. Going surprisingly strong for Mark Sanford is what is that? An, is that an indication that the electorate has changed? Is that an indication that Republicans are stronger? Is that an indication of anything, or is this kind of a data point in the wilderness? I, I think it's more of a data point in the wilderness for the time being. I mean, this is a Republican district. I think the so the meta point I would make about this is that what has changed is not that politicians are slimier than they used to be. I mean, again, you know, Kennedy. 
FDR, you know, you can go back a long, long way um, and and find, you know, Thomas Jefferson, people doing things that they shouldn't be doing in their marriages. Um, what's changed is that the demand for um, at least maintaining the fictions of propriety has gone way, way down. And, the, and because it's gone to zero on the left, the right has finally realized a sort of a game theory kind of thing. The right has finally realized that uh, if, if unless they adjust to this and recalibrate their expectations of politicians' behaviors, um, they're going to keep sacrificing their pieces off the board for no good reason. Well, not necessarily no good reason, but for reasons that um, will win them nothing in the culture, will win no respect from liberals, um, and it's just, it's just basically shooting themselves in the foot. And I think that trend is more interesting than what this means about mm-hmm. South Carolina one yeah, or anything like right. that. Well, more, you know, more, more globally or more historically or more socially. More um, meta. We had, a, we had an intellectual scandal uh, this week that goes to the question of um, personal behavior and personal conduct and uh, personal lives and their relation to public policy when the – um, the economic historian Neil Ferguson, uh, in a in a in a in a speech, um, made reference to an old saw about the uh, great liberal economist John Maynard Keynes um, believing in uh, sort of uh, going into debt and uh, spending now, and famously saying, "In the long run, we are all dead," because uh, Keynes was a homosexual who died without. Uh, as they used to say, without issue, without having children. Um, somebody then wrote a blog. He died with issues, just not issues. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. right. <laughs> someone then issued a, you know, someone uh, wrote a, uh, an, an item on a financial website talking about how offensive this was. And uh, Ferguson then unrelievedly apologized. And, uh, and, because uh, Ferguson's got know. kids, he's got to pay for their college. He's got to get the speaking fees up. <laughs> right. He gets plenty of speaking fees, Neil Ferguson. Um, but you know, this was a sort of an interesting uh, moment because this this idea has been uh, very much present in uh, a certain type of thinking about uh, liberal economics and Keynesian consumption economics forever. Um, in in certain quarters, the 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 notion that uh, the notion that um, it is important to deal you know, immediately with, you know, economic uh, troubles by going into debt when and, and laying on debt for future generations um, because uh, um, uh, liberals or li- liberal ideas and, you know, homosexuals who didn't have children uh, don't care about the what happens, you know, after they die because, in the long run, we're all dead and, right. you know, there's no afterlife and there's no and, – and you don't have children and all of that. Um, aside from the fact that people then said, well, Keynes was married and he did want to have children and his wife miscarried. It was a great tragedy even though he was gay and all that. Um, uh, the question is, is it, is it legitimate to uh, extrapolate um, – how political and social views are generated from the private lives of those who generate them. Um, my answer is, of course. Um, you know, there, but there's, 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 there are two criteria here going on, right? First of all, anybody, I don't think anybody in their right mind writing a biography of John Maynard Keynes today would leave out Keynes's relationship to the Bloomsbury set to his homosexuality, to his childlessness. I don't think anyone would just sort of put all that aside and say it's irrelevant to understanding the man and his worldview. Um, And I think it's the the sort of, and as John and I sort of emailed about this as it was unfolding last weekend, you know, there were a lot of very smart people on Twitter who were acting as if this was the most ludicrous thing to say about John Maynard Keynes imaginable when in fact people have been having this conversation about John Maynard Keynes for 50 years. And that was one of the things that sort of surprised me was just sort of the, 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 the short-term memory of so many people today that they think if it shocks them, um, it's not their ignorance that's to blame. It's some other sort of political sensibility. At the same time, the problem is 
is what what Ferguson could be claimed to have been doing is trying to discredit the whole idea of Keynesianism based upon Keynes's own homosexuality, which I do think is illegitimate and unfair. I mean, Paul Krugman believes in Keynesianism passionately, and I don't think it means he's gay. Um, and I don't think it has anything. So he to do doesn't with, have children. Though he doesn't have children, he, he does have, have some uh, absurdly named cats, though. Um, yeah. But um, you know, but. The point is that there are lots of Keynesians out there, and they don't. Their relationship uh-huh. to the idea has nothing to do with Keynes's moral status or his personal lifestyle or any of that kind of stuff. And I think that reasonable people can distinguish between these things. But what drives me absolutely batty is this idea. You know, the entire liberal academic establishment, the entire media establishment, has been arguing for forty friggin' years. That your personal lifestyle is, is, or your personal identity is relevant to your public policy views, from the idea that the personal is political to um, your racial, ethnic, gender status, that somehow a, you know, Sonia Sotomayor being a wise Latina brings something ineffable and irreducible that no white man could bring to a, a question. And all of a sudden, when somebody says, hey, maybe the fact that John Maynard Keynes was, was gay, who, who and not just that he was gay, I mean, that's sort of a side issue, is that John Maynard Keynes, in his own memoirs, explicitly rejects what he calls the puritanical you know, underpinnings of, Protest, of the Protestant work ethic and capitalism, rejecting them, saying that we don't, we, we don't need to save for some you know, never realized future. We can live in the now. And somehow pointing this out or alluding to it is absolutely outrageous. But you, know, you have some place like Bowdoin College, which offers a class on queer gardens, arguing that because homosexualities, homosexuals couldn't find a, you know, a place in, in mainstream society, they had to express their views with via clever hedgerows hmm. and, and yard design. And somehow that scholarship, expressing your homosexuality through uh, yard design is, is scholarship, but somehow suggesting that maybe it had something to do or your childlessness had something to do with right. – your right. economic views is as beyond the pale homophobia, and I just don't get that disconnect. Well, well you the get disconnect it. Disconnect is very plain. I think the disconnect yeah. is <laughs> it's a disconnect. Get, not allowed to say anything <laughs> yeah. critical. You're not yeah. allowed to say anything that might be might might suggest um, that you know uh, homosexuals hold hold views. Uh, you know, as uh, in part because of the perspective afforded them by their sexuality that do not necessarily jibe with everything that is good and wonderful and true and beautiful because we are now in an age in which we do not believe that homosexuality itself is an illness or that homosexuality is evil and therefore right. we're in the booster phase which is it's a all weird one everything is one everything is conceivably wonderful. wonderful look yeah. If the economy, you know, if you're a, if you're a, if you're a, uh, an Orthodox Jew, and uh, you you live as an Orthodox Jew, um, your uh, views on how, the proper way to celebrate the Christian Sabbath are not really of all that much interest to 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 Christians. I mean, this is this is what happened. People live different kinds of lifestyles. And they have different kinds of ideas, and that is – there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of you know, intellectual diversity and having a, having a heterogeneous intellectual and social life in, in, in the world. Yeah, which is uh, – the, the the, a couple of strange things going on there. One is that they, they, they act as if Keynesianism is bad, is a bad thing, right? I mean if you simply replace Keynesianism with gardens – You'd have a perfectly legitimate class at uh, an American college, right? But it's only because people are now thinking like, well, maybe we shouldn't be going into debt. That Keynesianism is considered a bad thing, so it can't have been it can't have been a result of a certain sexual identity. So, but you know, the other thing is though. I was going to say was that the third thing is like the second thing is like. Well, I mean, in a weird way, and I I know this. I don't. I kind of everybody was sort of gay back then, particularly in England. Yeah, Lord. (laughs) hey listen i'm reading i am right now 
I'm right now reading Satyricon, which may be the first novel ever written by Petronius in the first century, uh, um, you know, uh, CE. But you just picked it up one day. He was also my favorite because it was a. Yeah, I'm reading it in part because it was a. Um, it was one of the influences for The Great Gatsby, which I which I read last week uh, again. Um, I hadn't read it really since college, and uh, and uh, this uh, Satyricon uh, is one of the dirtiest. <laughs> is a is a book in which uh, let us say uh, the sexuality of its um, of its cast of characters is extremely fluid. Um, and in you wait, know, you mean you mean fle- flexible? You don't mean you don't mean wet? No, I, yes, I Maybe mean both. I mean flexible and um, and and uh, wet and in uh, on <laughs> on successive pages, you know, uh, somebody is um, you know is courting a woman and is so, uh, is be taken by a man, and then the man is mad because he's slept with the woman, so he beats up his other younger boyfriend, and this is all written. So, in other words, Jonah's weekend, totally. Exactly. So, um, you know, I actually now don't remember why I brought this up, except to say that I've been just everybody's gay. I, yeah, I think it was. I, I think it was to. I think it was to sort of announce pretentiously that you're reading Satyricon. I'm reading Satyricon by Petronius. Yeah, <laughs> just to say Petronius. Uh, Petronius. Uh, and uh, uh, well, wait. So, what, so you read it because I, of the I Great Gatsby? Reading Satyricon by Petronius. Mm-hmm. So it's because of the Great Gatsby. In Latin. Okay, I'm not reading it in Latin. Yeah, I know you're not reading Latin. Please, nobody's nobody's that stupid. So, so, but because because of the oh, Great Gatsby, the, the movie's coming out. Satyricon by Petronius. Okay. This show is brought to you by Audible.com, oh. the home for audio content on the internet. If you want to listen to it, Audible has it with over 100,000 titles in virtually every genre. You'll find what you are looking for. Get a free audiobook and 30 day trial today. By signing up at www.audiblepodcast.com backslash glop. Now, here's an important question for you guys. Uh, because the obvious uh, book to recommend this, this week uh, from Audible would be The Great Gatsby, the uh, $140 million 3D movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio is coming out on, on Friday. Um, and it's not really three D, is it? It is in three yeah, D. It was conceived in three D, and you know, from what one can tell, uh, the famous scene in which Gatsby shows Daisy Daisy his shirts is sort of like Doctor Tongue's three D House of Gatsby, where he throws the shirts at the camera, and I think they're going to come flying at you. You know, oh. silk shirts uh, just from a big closet flying at you. So it's going to be really, really kind of. You know, Kind of loses part of the charm of that moment, but uh, okay. Yeah, well, it's not really that charming a moment. So the whole there's a whole debate about whether or not you know making a sort of lurid, purple, overheated melodrama out of The Great Gatsby is a violation of the book or a true evocation of the book. Having read it, I think it's probably more an evocation than a violation. But but having not seen the movie, I can't speak to that. But so I, I will say that you should uh, download The Great Gatsby, although it's probably the title that least needs any publicity. This week, so perhaps Rob, you, as a far more uh, literate uh, person uh, who you know happens to be reading Satyricon by by Petronius, sure, or is that me? I think that's me. But that's Rob, you. That was you. Yeah, Rob, do you have a an audible recommendation? I do. Uh, I was I was I was trying to compile a, a list for a, a friend of mine who wanted to read um uh, only funny books for the next. Three months, just funny books, books that make you laugh out loud. <clears throat> and um, I started um, not with Satyricon, but with uh, Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim, which is actually on Audible and would be is a very, very, very funny book, perfectly suited to being uh, heard and, and, and to being read uh, aloud. It's read by Paul Shelley, whose name I don't recognize. I'm sure that's somebody quite famous, but I don't know who that is. It is a very, very, very funny book. It's Kingsley Amos' sort of entrance into um, um, uh, his first book of his career, beginning of a very, very big career for him, and very, very funny book, and um, I recommend it. Lucky Jim. Jonah? Um, Well, first of all, I want to say that one of my favorite episodes of the Transformers was when Satyricon went after Megatron with, yes. his, raw, with his raw wit. Yes. Um, and Megatron was also gay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
um, form of a punch cartoon. Anyway, so uh, I would um, – picking something a little out of left field, um, not like something as relevant and mainstream as Satyricon by Petronius. Um, uh, there's a wonderful book by uh, an under underappreciated historian, David Pietruza, called uh, 1920, the year of six presidents. And as anybody who's actually tried to figure out and understand what – early uh, 20th century politics was about um, and how like the progressives dealt with the Republicans and the Democrats and what the Dixiecrats were and all of that kind of stuff. It all gets really murky, you know, sort of like at the end of the 19th century with the free silver stuff and the populists, it just becomes that stuff that no one paid attention to in, in sixth grade social studies. So uh, 1920s is eminently readable, almost magazine style treatment of the year 1920 where a lot of the trends that define the 20th century get set up and it's it's very it's a it's a breezy accessible read very well done and it, it too is on audible and i assume it is a good listen as well can you spell the author's name p-i-t-r-u-s-z-a i believe is how you would do it i mean i'm not great at, at right. impromptu spelling but uh, Sorry it's called about 19, that, but 1920, the year of six presidents, by David Pietruza. Excellent. Well, I don't know if Satyricon by Petronius is on Audible.com, but if it is, it's not it safe is. for work. <laughs> so don't listen to it on your computer uh, at work. Um, well, uh, gentlemen, um, the country is. Uh, uh, is utterly uh, transfixed, horrified, disgusted, amazed, uh, moved, and um, and uh, baffled by this um, horrendous story about the three young women in in Cleveland who oh. disappeared ten years ago and were you know and escaped from a from a home in which they were being you know kept in chains and raped and beaten and 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 having babies and um, uh, by these uh, three uh, middle-aged brothers, um, and I, I don't know about you, uh, but you know the story is going to go on and on and on, and we're going to hear more and more and more about it. And I find it almost impossible to read more than you know two sentences about it or watch a news story about it without you know just wanting to crawl into a ball and you know go under a cover and never come out from from under it and yet i i assume that this is going to be the story of the year and that we're you know we're we're just going to everyone is just going to sort of luridly go over it again and again and again um yeah i think that's probably right i mean my my what it makes me want to do is put um is take my daughter to the local vet and have them put one of those gps trackers in her yeah yeah. You know, I mean, that, just, that's it, no joke. That is no yeah. joke. That, that makes that, me terrified. That is, a serious, that is a serious thing that may start happening really soon. Well, yeah. but, uh, there's nothing. I, I mean, there's nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, it, you know, you don't want to you don't want to react hysterically to. To to rare and horrible events. It's a horrible and horrific event because it's rare, not because it's a we're in some kind of, you know, uh, epidemic of this stuff. But. I mean, just to just to get away from this horrible story, which is creepy and lurid, and and uh, creepy and lurid works. Yeah. Uh, when I hear this, uh, hear this story, my instant need is to make a lot of inappropriate jokes about it because yeah. it's so awful. I have to make jokes about it, but but they're also incredibly awful and um and and sort of indefensible. So instead of doing that, I'll say this. I think Joan is totally right about those GPS trackers. I think we actually are going to enter a phase when there's going to be a lot more of that stuff in, in people. I mean, there's no – my friend uh, Dick Costello, who is the um, uh, CEO of Twitter, gave the commencement speech last weekend to um, uh, at University of Michigan to his alma mater. And he had a, you know, he's a very, he's a very, very funny guy. In fact, Costello is one of the very few CEOs of a major company who also auditioned twice for Saturday Night Live. Um, and I almost made it, I think. Um, he's a very funny guy. And he said, uh, you know, things are changing for you. You all have the internet in your pants. 
<laughs> you have the entire internet in your pants right now. And it's true. And the idea that you could be them ten, I mean, 10 years ago, it was not as ubiquitous as it is now. And I think 10 years ago and 10 years from now, the idea that you'll have a chip implanted or something implanted right under the skin or something, there'll be some way, there'll be an easier way for you to know where your kids are, where your loved ones are, where your stuff is. I think that's inevitable. And I'm not sure that's a bad thing. No, and it'll have your medical history on it so mm-hmm. that if you get in an accident, people will be able to access. They'll know, you know, what drugs you're allergic to, what your blood type is, you know, if you, you know, if you have a latex allergy so that if you're at a hospital unconscious and they have to do that, you, you know, you're, you, you, don't, you don't end up going and into, stuff you know, too. Look, 30% cataleptic of, shock. 30% of all medications, of all th- pharmaceuticals are misused. They're ineffective and mis- because they're misused. 30%. Which means a third of our pharmaceutical costs are, are, are down the tubes. Not just the cost we, we not just our pharmaceutical, just the, what we pay at the pharmacy, but thirty percent of all R and D. We're spending all this money trying to reinvent pharmaceutical products to replace pharmaceutical products that are that still work, but we don't think they work because people are taking them wrong. So I, uh, the idea of quantifying the quantified self, they call it, is not a bad thing. I think it's I think it's really fascinating that. I offered one sentence about yeah. how this makes me want to put a GPS chip in my daughter, and you guys ran <laughs> like the house was on fire away from right. the Cleveland story. You know, oh, it's all about quantified that, yeah. data. You know, medical yeah, medical no. records. <laughs> it's going to be so much better. I soon. will say, look, I mean, look, I, I I know this is again another dark sort of point. Getting just getting back to the Cleveland thing for two seconds. Um, it's an incredibly dark point, and and it's. I don't know how to articulate it without sounding a little like an ass, and I don't want to sound disrespectful. But um, reading about it a little bit today, I was a little relieved that these girls were were actually in chains um, for a big chunk of their captivity. Because one of the things that in the first 24 hours of reporting about this, it made it sound like, you know, I mean, like you think about being trapped somewhere for 10 years. And it made it sound like they probably had opportunities to escape, and and it but that thought bummed me out more than anything else. You know, this idea that they were just sort of had their innocence stolen and they were brainwashed into believing these evil men were their saviors or their husbands or whatever. And it turns out that no, they actually tried to escape a few times. They were chained up. I mean, it makes the crime all the more evil and horrific. But it somehow preserves the humanity of the victims more. Um, you know the other the other aspect of this, which is which, and we can move on from it afterwards. Is I mean uh, the um, this speaks so ill of the Cleveland Police Department. I mean that oh there God. were that there were five or six reports just in the last two years that we know about where people said I saw I saw somebody crawling around naked in a yard. I saw this. I saw that. And and they never even drove by and knocked on the door of the house. I mean, that is just so appalling. And, you know, once all the dust clears, that police department is um, is going to go through a, you know, an inquisitional scrubbing, the likes of which, you know, we've never seen. It's like that story about the, 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 the cop stopping Jeffrey Dahmer and the kid saying, you know, he's he's. I don't know him. He's, you know, he's kidnapped me and Dahmer talking the cop out of letting the kid go home and then Dahmer killing the kid. I mean, or, you know, so that, 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 hmm? I was just going to raise another, there's this thing, there's a story going on in DC. Um, you know, there was this teacher at Beauvoir, which is arguably the ritziest or the second ritziest or certainly the top tier of the private uh, grade schools in, in the city. It's the feeder for, I can't remember. Beauvoir by Petronius, right? <laughs> um, and there was a third grade teacher who was an absolutely abhorrent pedophile. And um, he was babysitting students. He was, um, you know, their tutor, sort of befriending them. He, and uh, they found this fi- these images on his camera that were absolutely, as the Washington Post referred to it, Every parent's worst nightmare. That's all they'll say. And um, there were some red flags. Like, first of all, um, 
he would sleep many nights in the closet of his classroom at Beauvoir, which I think some people might think is odd. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is really outrageous, and I think it's kind of interesting sociologically, is that what has not gotten nearly the attention it deserves in Washington, I think in part because so many journalists are afraid of sort of the private school mafia <laughs> um, and want to be able to, their kids to get into any school that they can get into – um, the school caught him, knew what he did, and they kicked him off campus. They said, get out of here. Um, you know, we're going to call the cops, but they didn't call the cops until he was off campus. And the Washington Post story this week says that was all the head start he needed. And then he was in the wind for years. And um, and it was so clear – the Post won't say it outright, but it's very clear to me at least that what Bovara was terrified of is having right. um, the cops come and arrest a pedophile on their campus. On and campus, they thought it was right. worth letting him go rather than um, have that kind of scandal. And oh. you know, I think there's – it's – there's this weird thing in this culture that you – know, or I guess in human beings, I don't know that it's unique to our culture um, – that makes people look away from terrible, terrible evil rather than sort of follow through on it. Maybe well, it's a nice hear thing. The, you, you'd hear, the, you'd hear the, the, the headline. You can see the headlines. Elite school rocked by sex scandal. Yeah. Sex right. Well, now and now and now here they are. Yeah. You know, right. elite school is still rocked by sex scandal. So if they'd behaved in a moral manner, um, you know, with a sense of social responsibility toward anybody else who either not, not only that he might be, you know, punished, but that he would not get himself into a position where he could do it to other children. You know, um, I mean, that's part of the interesting institutional aspect of a lot of these stories about about uh, pedophile, you know, teachers at elite schools and elsewhere. Is that um, uh, the schools end, ended up believing that they had a bureaucratic prerogative? To deal with a, uh, you know, to to make to keep things quiet and make sure that there wasn't a scandal that engulfed them, and then the sense that you know there were that they had a responsibility to whomever a predatory, you know, monster might uh, attack next, to make sure that that person was, you know, was was taken into custody so that he would not touch another person, um, was not of interest to them. Finally. So, you know, that that seems to be a a constant in in a lot of these stories. Now, having delved into the heart of darkness, Mm -hmm. uh, as we have, um, I would like to uh, uh, ask you guys whether or not uh, you really, really, really respect the fact that I'm reading Satyricon by Petronius. No, no, I actually (laughs) – I don't believe it, but go ahead. Um, I, uh, could I make such a thing up? I mean, what I really did was I put down Oration on the Dignity of Man by Pico della Mirandola, sure. a Renaissance text, because I thought it was too new. And yeah, then I, too, I, I went back flashy. to Satyricon mm-hmm. by Petronius. Um, and I will be, you know, later this afternoon delving into Herodotus's histories and then reading the Hammurabi Code and the original Codex. But you know, someone's going to come along and just take your guitar me. and smash it against the Delta House wall. Exactly man. right. Exactly I right. I do not want to talk about me. Okay, this is not. <laughs> so what do you think? That's the best joke you've done all day. Thank you very much. Um, I do want to say, however, that last Friday I saw uh, Iron Man 3, the first of these summer uh, blockbusters, which made. Uh, this is my favorite detail of of the year. It made 175 million dollars last weekend, and these and the number two movie made seven million dollars. Right. So it made 25 times the amount at the box office that the that the number two movie. And made. a lot of that it made in China. And a lot of that it made. Uh, no, no, it made a whole other uh, amount of money in China uh, with its uh, with its uh, now notable villain, uh, Mister Not Chinese Guy. Not Mandarin, yeah. Not Man Mandarin. Darren. <laughs> yeah. That's how they spell it. It's like Ben Kinsley as Man Darren. It's the Man, Man Darren, yeah. That's right. He's the third Darren. Yeah. Uh, ben, Not Kings- since ben Kingsley is the third Darren. Elizabeth played the Japanese warlord in Hawaii 5 <laughs> Um, But, 
here's what here's what interests me about Iron Man three. So Iron Man three is a much better movie than Iron Man two, which of course is not hard because you know uh, watching paint dry would be a better movie than Iron Man two. Um, but uh, watching it, I was struck by the fact that uh, it's you know thirty minutes of action scenes are now entirely indistinguishable from the thirty minutes of action scenes in Transformers three or in you know uh oblivion or you know what th- that right. that uh the cgi in these uh movies has now gotten to a point where they all look exactly the same the effects are exactly the same they take you know large scale industrial places or cities right. or something like right. that and have it's them sort of partially cents, destroyed though. it's awful they spend 6 cents on the on the on the on the extras so it's always the same you know, three people in a baby carriage pointing in, in horror at a giant spaceship that's crashing. Right. It's, hor- it's horrible. Right. So my sense was it can't possibly be that the audiences for these movies, these teenage boys who see every single one of them, are all that jazzed by, you know, by seeing, you know, an oil rig destroyed by, you know, a, by a heat machine and, a, and, and, and 12 Iron Man costumes. So... People are going to these movies for something else. The Hollywood thinks that it has to spend 150 million dollars on these effects and keep topping each movie with these effects, but that is not what is driving these audiences to go in these unbelievable numbers. And who will go to Star Trek next week? And who will go to the, the Lone Ranger three weeks from now? And all of that. It is the character bits. It is the quiet moments. It's like, you know, the Avengers, which made $500 million last summer. Does anybody remember the climactic fight scene? No, but everybody remembers the Hulk punching yeah. Thor. You know, that that's the money shot. The money shot is no longer the White House being blown up by a spaceship. It is Hulk punching Thor. And that, that why is that memorable? Because it was funny. Yeah, because I don't know. Expect it. I don't think you're right. I mean, I, I mean, I wish you were right. I, I wish that were true, but I don't think it is. I think the people like the big effects. Summer tentpole movies work. They are financially – I wish they weren't, but they are financially smart uh, for these people to do and they're financially smart to put in the effects. I, they, they, you also need those funny trailer moments. That is what pushes Iron Man, makes Iron Man a billion-dollar property and, uh, and Superman not. It's what makes Iron Man more valuable than The Dark Knight in many ways. Um, just in terms of you know money, uh, but um, but no, you, you, the the big effects are really but they they all look the same. How could these people want to see something that's all the same? But the truth is that 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 that's what people say they want, and that's what they respond to when uh, when they when they get their uh, when they do their audience response stuff, which can be in a feature film world incredibly exhausting. I mean, the, the market research is incredibly exhausting. People like the effects; they want to go see something cool. And they'd like the 3D stuff too, which I didn't think they did, but they do. And they, they want to see they want to see it bigger and bigger and more and more and more each time. Um, that does that's not to say that the, you don't need the funny moments; you need those too. But the, that's not what makes the movie, unfortunately, because that's those are the stuff that I write. So I wish it were more valuable. <laughs> um, I do think you know it's funny the 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 you know the Wolverine movie is going to be coming out. I don't I don't actually know if you guys would know this, but like. Wolverine in some ways sort of saved Marvel comics and was the the single character that sort of extended the shelf life of comics popularity by a by a long way and um he has the fanboy following in the comic world for Wolverine is far I mean Iron Man was sort of a joke for years um uh Batman sort of came in and out you know and all that but uh you know it was really Wolverine and the stuff that that Frank Miller and Chris Claremont and John Byrne and these guys had done with that character that sort of made comics dirtier, darker, and grittier, at least in the Marvel world. And they haven't been able to really succeed with that in the movies. And when I was listening to John talk about this CGI and then Rob, I mean, what it, what it seems to me is that one of the things that would be at least interesting is if they tried to do go the complete other way and Wolverine would be the perfect character to do, to do it with. And not necessarily go low budget, but go much more sort of gritty, human, not no mm-hmm. CGI whatsoever. Sort of, I don't know, have um, 
you know, some, I don't know who the director would be, but, uh, you know, like some Steven Soderbergh type do a movie that was sort of dark with, you know, wet streets and backlit and, and with a character like Wolverine and see how that did. Um, my guess is they can't afford to do it just because the upside of doing it as a sort of a comic booky garish CGI thing, there's just so much more money to be made with that. But it would be a in- more interesting movie. Um, well, they just- movies are expensive to make. And so uh, and so the, the idea is and I think it's, it's, it's financially sound is that you want to get to the point where you spend enough money that you're hedging the loss. So it isn't the, – the, the trick to making money at a movie like that for a big studio isn't to spend $15 million or less on the movie. It's to spend $150 million in the movie and make it CGI with lots of stuff because you know you're going to recoup. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an internal logic as awful as it is to these big pictures. So whether right. you think that a smaller picture would be more interesting or maybe be a better market leader, that is a bigger risk right. weirdly than actually spending a lot more money on it. Okay, but here's I'm going to make my final case for this uh, character bit funny thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, Johnny Depp uh, was um, a universally regarded actor, very pretentious, who had never made a hit. And then he got cast in Pirates of the Caribbean. And over the course of four Pirates of the Caribbean movies, Pirates of the Caribbean movies made worldwide $3.7 billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Five years later, an unemployable actor named Robert Downey Jr., who had been in jail for drug use and coke, crack cocaine, heroin, couldn't be insured. Uh, 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 Some genius at Marvel had the idea that he should play Tony Stark in Iron Man. The Iron Man movie made $750 million. The second one made a billion the other Marvel movies were not that successful, but it led to the Avengers, which has made close to $2 billion worldwide. Those movies, the Depp movies and the Downey movies, together have made $6, 7000000000 billion because of those two guys. And why? Because they're funny. Because people wanted to watch them. Yeah, but... Um, hey, who's calling? Yeah, I'm sorry, guys. It's... Who's calling? Is that uh, is that Petronius? <laughs> because I am in that the my fabled uh, Barco lounger chair on the other side of the room, I couldn't get to the phone in time. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry, anyway. but I, I do have to tell you that uh, that uh, uh, Rob's wrong and and I'm right, but that's okay because we're both uh, right. Because who cares? In the end, these are. <laughs> Comic, these are stupid comic book movies, and you and they their shelf life is zero. But I mean, I do think that there is an interesting aspect, which is different directors used to have different styles, right? If you different kinds of action movies, Howard Hawks had a different style from John Ford, and you no, know, now they're all the same. They look different, and these movies now have achieved an astonishing degree of technical proficiency. Like you know, you 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 have no doubt that what you are seeing which isn't happening is happening you know a snake is going through an office building and you know a, a machine like snake is going through an office building in chicago it's not taking place it looks exactly like it's happening right in front of you but there's no um you know maybe james cameron's the only one there's no individuality to these sequences you know no, it's I mean, as though know, they're being made that's true. Ch- i think j- I think it's James Cameron and, and and Ang Lee. Frankly, Life of Pi had that. But look, the big summer superhero movies are about CGI, and they all look the same. I think they're all done by the same house, CGI house. So yeah, I mean, it's look that, that's right. But I but I, I would just go back and say that you no, know, in fact, you're wrong. That you 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 make you make a lot of money. It's better. You may you, you may make a ten percent better return if you got some humor in it. If you've got a charismatic star who's funnier. Uh, and who's got a little bit of wit and charm to him? That's nothing new. That's true about everything. That's that's true about the James Bond movies. But it helps. Uh, it helps. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It is not a deal breaker. I mean, there's nothing funny about Dark Knight Rises, and it made a whole lot of money. There was nothing particularly funny about um, uh, Transformers at all. I mean, it was. Leaden. That's not true. The first Transformers is a funny movie. That's actually 
This well, is one particularly of the, Satyricon, oh, he was fantastic. Okay, you yeah. give me a break. <laughs> this is, oh, this is actually where this theory started getting developed because there are funny bits and throughout the first Transformers, well, yeah, the other two are awful. Okay, no, where they're like in the about. desert and they and they end up calling to find you know to get a okay, yeah, uh, you okay, know, there's, a missile there's gonna be there's funny minute bits in every in everything except for like the Dark Knight, but that 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 would be normal. You'd always want to have some, one or two of those things in for comic Rob, relief. What, but what is there's comic relief in Hamlet. Rob, what is your explanation for the movies that fail that have huge CGI, like Battleship or Prometheus? John, um, well, nobody know. can. I mean, uh, uh, who knows? I really would say I, I would first say that we, we we simply don't know. Those things are these are mysteries. It's a dark art to what makes a movie successful, and what what doesn't. And anyone who thinks they can figure it out is a fool or is selling something to fools. Um, the second thing I have to say is like the, they, they don't have the same kind of star power, right, or character story that those other stories have that that seems to work for people. Um, that's why big budget CGI sequels are 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 the life's blood of the movie studios because you're 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 selling a title that people already know that already tests well. That people already say, oh, I want to see that. I like the first one. And you're selling a formula, a version of what you already saw, uh, slightly bigger and louder. And, um, and it's, just an easier, it's just an easier sell. Okay, so gentlemen, we have come to the end of the wondrous glop uh, podcast, which I think next week we will – next time we will call Satyricon by Petronius. I think so. Uh, in honor of the of the uh, of the book that, uh, of course, I'm I'm, I'm reading, um, but uh, uh, it's now time for the uh, important personal appearances uh, <laughs> section of of the podcast. Uh, Jonah, uh, where will you be appearing in the recent uh, in the in the recent future? Um, I will be first of all. I'm thinking maybe we should call this podcast Glop Culture. Get it? Pop culture? Glop, Glop like, culture? That's like good. Glop yeah. culture. Glop culture. Okay, we have, now we actually have a name. Glop okay, culture. And, okay, and now um, uh, I will be in Topeka, Kansas on Friday uh, being the luncheon speaker at Americans for Prosperity Conference. Uh, you can Google me <laughs> and AFP and find that pretty quickly. Americans are for prosperity? Interesting. Well, it's, it's a subculture that's for prosperity, which is nice. Now, Rob, will you be in New York uh, next week for the uh, exciting media upfronts where the well, fall I, schedule is being I announced? I will not anywhere? be in New York um, no matter what. Um, I have a, a pilot in contention, um, um, and it was despite my, uh, my rather sunny uh, description of market research, I, I do not enjoy the market research, nor do I believe in it. Um, but who knows if we get ordered, um, that will be an announcement will happen next week. I don't know if we're going to get ordered, but no matter what happens, I won't be there. I'm going to be here. I'll be making personal appearances here in my little, uh, office in my home and personal appearances in my office at Warner brothers, uh, daily. Well, aside from my weekly gig at, uh, at Chortles in, uh, in, uh, in West Nyack, uh, New York, uh, you know, which is right next to the giggles and the, uh, and the hilarity factory, um, I do actually have uh, an exciting public appearance for all you uh, really? New York Jews. Uh, I will be speaking at the JCC so. in Manhattan Tikkun on Shavuos night, <laughs> an Arab Shavuos, from 11.15 to 12.30. So if you want to come to the JCC in Manhattan to hear me talk at the Tikkun on Shavuos, this is your big chance. And remember, what will you be talking so, about? If you mention, how to spell I'll be Dakota talking Shavuos. about the transformation of New York City, um, wow. and uh, uh, and you can do that. It, from, is, uh, a tra- it is a tradition on the on the on the Jewish holiday of 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 Shavuot to spend the evening in study and contemplation and discussion and debate uh, until the morning, and so that is the unlike every other Jewish s- holiday. <laughs> and you also eat scrambled eggs. So um, scrambled eggs and uh, and Shavuos, uh, JCC in Manhattan, uh, me, eleven uh, fifteen. Um, if you mention Glop Culture, this podcast, uh, I will simply give you the URL to audible.com uh, so that you can download that free 30-day trial and free book. 
Um, thank you very much, gentlemen, and we will uh, be together again. Um, and I expect everyone to have read, of course, Satyricon by Petronius. Is Satyricon opening for you at Chortles? Uh, Satyricon <laughs> is not the writer. Petronius <laughs> is the writer. Satyricon is the improv. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not listening. <laughs> it's a conservative. Bye, guys. The Satyricon. See you later. Bye. Ricochet. Join the conversation.